0: Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. You'll find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 408. We have at long last come to the end of our study in Nehemiah. I trust and I pray that the Lord will keep bearing fruit from our study this summer, throughout this year, and throughout our lives. I know that it's been good for me to be in this book. I hope The same for you. This morning we're going to study the last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13. But because this is the end of the book, we'll also be kind of looking at the book as a whole through that lens, seeking to see the lessons from the book that are here for us to learn. Now, if you've been here or if you haven't, you might be helped by a little bit of an overview of where Nehemiah has taken us so far. A people in ruins is where we started because of their generational waywardness from God. A chance for a new start for these people happens when God leads Nehemiah to leave the Persian court to organize a rebuilding of the walls of the old capital city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, against all odds as a leader, succeeds in his task. And the Jewish people, against many enemies, returns... To live inside the city walls, which only months ago had been rubble. But the Jews were more than just another nation dwelling in some random place. And that's why we know about their story. That's why it's significant for us to study. They were the chosen people of God and Jerusalem the chosen place. So in their return, they had to not only sort out where their new houses would be. They had to sort out their sin against God that had them exiled in the first place. We followed them as they sought to do this. They did it in a days long ceremony of teaching God's word, confessing their sins, and eventually renewing the covenant relationship God had started way back when they were just beginning as God's people in the wilderness. What a story! And as Nehemiah chapter 12 closed and we open up Nehemiah 13, it it appears this could be it. This could be the rags to riches story. A total redemption of a previously ruined people. All is going well. The people are consistently and comprehensively applying God's word to all aspects of their lives. Which is where we open in chapter 13. Look at verse 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. We're not going to spend a lot of time in those verses, but it's just an illustration of how God seems to be working and the people readily obeying. This story has the potential to be a glorious conclusion to not only the story of Israel, but the story of human history. This is the last historical book of the Old Testament. Ever since the first man and woman sinned and God and man went separate ways, there's been a felt yearning throughout the pages of the opening books of the Bible for for a return to the original status. Perfect, obedient people living with God in a perfect place. The walls and the gates of God's dwelling have been closed off to humanity in Eden. And though God had made... Every invitation to return. No generation. No iteration of mankind. Could figure out. How to obey. In order to live with God. But as Nehemiah reaches his conclusion. Perhaps this is the people. And perhaps Nehemiah is the promised leader. Maybe that Messiah. Who was going to come and help God's people. To be God's faithful and obedient people. Well, I'm sorry to say with this introduction, I've set us up for disappointment as we close out our study. In Nehemiah 13, hope fails as Israel fails. And not even the good leadership of Nehemiah can keep it from happening. Let's read the rest of the story, picking up in verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who is related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the ties of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, that is what just happened, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, King of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers of the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, zadok the scribe, Hadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. And also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. Which they brought in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you? And do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. So, how should we approach this text? As people here, people who are looking to God and want him to work among us powerfully and in obvious ways, what do we need to see here that will warn us appropriately, but also encourage us. What is Nehemiah teaching us to look for as the sun sets on this book and this old covenant? Well, I think there are two lessons, which will be my outline this morning. Two lessons, and the first one is this. We are not good without God. We are not good without God. In verse 6 and 7 of Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah tells us that after all the things we've gone through already in the history of this book, he, he leaves. He's called back to his day job, working for the, for the king, Artaxerxes. And so he's called back to Babylon, which is likely where the king was at the time. And so he leaves Jerusalem for a period of time. We don't know how long, but we know when he returns, Nehemiah finds that the whole community is back to the way things were before. The very things they covenanted not to do in chapter 10, 30 through 39, they are now doing again in chapter 13. In verse 4 through 13, temple worship has been neglected. Tobiah, the same guy that had been working behind Nehemiah's back with the Jewish nobles in chapter 6, has weaseled his way back in to the picture. He's pulled some strings with a relative who's also a priest, and he has secured for himself a penthouse apartment inside the temple. Tobiah moved in, and all the supplies that were supposed to support the worship of God were moved out in order to make room for him and his living room furniture. Maybe in connection with Tobiah's move in verse 10, Nehemiah finds out that the supplies that were supposed to support the Levites, the temple servants, had been diverted elsewhere. So the Levites now are forced to go work in the fields because there is no offering being given to support them in helping the people worship God. In verses 15 to 16, the Sabbath day that God had given for the people to rest from work is now open for business. People, Jews and foreigners alike, are working throughout the day, selling, transporting goods. The recently constructed gates are doing nothing to restrict lawlessness, standing wide open for the open violation of God's law. In verse thirteen, verse twenty-three, in chapter thirteen, twenty-three and twenty-four, the people are back to looking for love in all the wrong places. Through intermarriages with foreigners, Israel had invited pagan worship and idolatry back into their culture. In repentance, they had sworn to God in chapter 10, verse 30, never will we do this again. But in chapter 13, verse 23, they're back at it. And enough time has passed that they have now had children in those unions. And those children were talking And these children did not know Hebrew, which meant they couldn't even understand God's word when it was read. Finally, in verse 28, one of the chief enemies of Israel, Samballot, in the book of Nehemiah, has a son-in-law who is a priest. An enemy who has a relative in the temple. Even a priest, meant to be holy and dedicated to God, had gone and married a foreign woman in open defiance of God's laws. Now, if this was the whole story, if we only knew chapter 13 and we didn't know Nehemiah 1 through 12, we might think, hopefully, about the reforms that Nehemiah will bring in this chapter. We might think good will come, but we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know chapter 1 through 12. We've heard this story before. The reversion back to sin, we now know, is not just a one-time thing. It is a pattern. And the people are more than misguided. They are prone to disobedience. So this chapter, at the end of the history books of the Old Testament, is a fitting encapsulation of what the whole Bible thus far has taught about human nature. These behaviors, these Hearts bent away from God. This is not an, an anomaly. This is the way we all are born. This is our nature. Like Tobiah and the people, we want to be God. We want what is God's for ourselves. Instead of making sure to reserve the best for God's worship, we take the best and we send it self, spend it selfishly. The best of our time goes to our work and our hobbies as Ken helped us In confessing our sins over that this morning. And God ends up getting whatever we can or can't cram into the margins. The majority of our pay goes to things we want or need. And little if any goes to support gospel ministry or people in need. Our energy and our mental activity obsesses over how to get more attention and more praise for ourselves from others. Rather than meditating on the glory and worth of God. Like the people on the Sabbath, we love the creation more than the Creator. This proclivity for idolatry leads us often to trample God's laws in pursuit of wealth. We fail to rest. We work out of envy for what others have. We strive for more, and when we get it, we want more still. We let the relentless push of cultural materialism sweep us up, and we get carried away and consuming. We give our hearts away to money, houses, technology, cars, clothes. If it is made by human hands, we find a way to worship it. Like the intermarriages, we follow the ways of the world. Instead of seeing God's desire to showcase his holiness through our cultural distinctiveness, we become chameleons of culture, blending in. We grow ashamed of God and in our embarrassment we make efforts to show our unbelieving friends and family that in most ways we are like them. We read the same things, we watch the same things, we love the same things. We make relationships the same way they do. We indiscriminately welcome any and all influences from the culture into our homes. None of this is good. Because it's all against God. But like Israel, we live this way from birth. And the evidence shows that without God, we are not good. This stark picture of human nature warns us. We need to check where we are putting our hope and our trust. As I've studied Nehemiah, I've read some things that people have written about it. And I've been struck by how... Many of the things written about this book focus on Nehemiah's great leadership. Now, there's no question that he was a skilled leader. And anybody in a leadership position would do well to study his ways and learn from them. But chapter 13 seems to highlight how even the best leader cannot do much when leading sinful people. Or there's a limit, we should say. The best they can do is make good laws. Reinforce them, encourage obedience, and dole out punishment when people disobey. But Nehemiah could not make the people want to obey. He couldn't change their minds to think about their actions with a God-centered lens. That wasn't in his power to do. Nehemiah could not change the hearts of the people to love God more than the world. So I find it fascinating that each time Nehemiah confronts the people, he does it with a question. You see that verse 11? Verse 11, he asks them, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Verse 17 and 18. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the walls? Verse 28. I guess it was before 28, uh, 27. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? You can, you can hear this kind of righteous frustration in his voice. What's wrong with you? Don't you know this is exactly why we are in the predicament we started in chapter one? When will you learn that disobeying God leads to destruction? So, while the book commends Nehemiah, I think, in many ways, for Nehemiah's leadership, the book ends highlighting that not even the best leader can lead people out of their sin. And without a leader who can do that, the best we can hope for is temporary and superficial reforms. Good people are not our hope. You know, in every major world crisis in human history, whether it be world war or dictator or scandal, that's when people seem to get realistic about people. (laughs) When there are these obvious, open, like... uh, transgressions of people hurting other people in obvious and significant ways and wise creeping ways. Then you start to see in the literature that follows in the op-eds, people start to talk more uh, humbly about the potential of the human race. But then inevitably, we slowly return back to hoping in people. You know why Oprah and Joel Osteen and Deepak Chopra and Jordan Peterson are so popular? It's because they all tell us what we want to hear. That there's nothing inherently wrong with us. And if we just try hard enough, we can be as good as we need to be. Friends, that is not a hopeful message if it turns out not to be true. True. And if you're willing to study history with humility, you will see that we, and I mean we, I mean even we here from our exalted position in the 21st century with all our great technology and all our modern medicine, even we clumped in with all the rest, we have not been getting better. After all these years, with all this wealth and all this progress, we are still fighting each other. We are still consuming our world. We are still hating our brother and our sister. We are not, without God, good people. (laughs) Philip, I thought this was going to be like a hopeful end to a study through a book. This is really depressing. Is it? Imagine if the rest of the Bible, the whole New Testament after this, told this same story. What if the New Testament was just more of this? What if human history was one unending hamster wheel of people running and falling off, and in all their efforts and stretches of staying on, they get no closer to true life with God? That's depressing. Because it leaves you without hope. Would you rather know you're a slave so you can cry out for rescue or think your whole life you're a saint and die in eternal bondage because of your sin? Do not hope in your goodness or in any other person's. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope this helps confirm what you've suspected and observed. Maybe you're here because you're distressed that the world is falling apart. That's exactly what God says is happening. And the problem is not climate change or technology or politics. It's us. You and I, we need to be saved from ourselves. And this is what the gospel offers you you as a slave, me as a slave to our sin nature, the gospel enters into our existence and tells us that Jesus, the son of God, came to rescue and redeem sinners and slaves and not just to redeem us, but to remake us and recreate us. If you know you need that, ask God to help you see Jesus and trust him. Turn from your sin against him. Ask him to help you walk in his life. Give you forgiveness at the cross that Jesus gives you by his death and resurrection. If you want to know more about that, I would love to talk to you after the service. Here are some other things that Nehemiah 13 warns us not to hope in. Don't hope in being good enough. As we've just seen, we'd be extremely proud to assume we could go a different direction than every other era of human history. Whatever morality you might create and live by, it will not get anywhere close to the kind of perfection and purity God requires for life with him. Don't hope in good traditions. Traditions cannot save you. A few chapters earlier, Israel had gotten back to going through all the right, no, right motions. Bible reading, confession, sacrifice, observing the religious calendar, and that did nothing in their hearts. You don't go to heaven because you went to church your whole life and served in ministry and went on short-term mission trips. You get there only through the death and life of Jesus Christ. Don't hope in good laws. Good laws can't save you. Humanity has always had access to the best laws that could be. God's laws revealed in God's word. Scripture says that even before the Ten Commandments were given, people had and still have a sense of God and what's right. We just suppress it, we put it away. The weakness of the law is not in its clarity, but in its effectiveness to change us. The law is powerless in the area where we most need help. There's no law you can write that will make people love God and each other. Don't hope in good knowledge as if knowing a lot could somehow alter your nature. Don't hope in good habits. Don't hope in good relationships. Don't hope in good leaders. Good leaders don't make people good. Nehemiah was zealous to see the people love and obey God and he tried everything he knew to do to get them to obey. He used words, he used laws, he used influence, he even used force. He leveraged his kind of uh, capital position as governor To punish people. He tried to bring attention to God's word. I think we're supposed to understand why he would resort to what he does. In verse 25, you know that part about him pulling out people's hair. I I think we're supposed to see in that and understand why he'd do it. He was trying. He wanted people to obey God. But also, we're meant to see why no manner of corporal punishment can make these people want the right thing. Good leaders can't make people good. I think that's a good word in our age, where so much scrutiny is placed on leaders, and some of it is justified. But but just follow me in the argument. What if? What if there was no more abuse, as terrible as it is? What if church leaders loved better than they do, and we don't? What if politicians were less self-focused, what then would the world turn into utopia of course not and this is a good word for leaders the best leader you can be in your home in your work in your church in your city is the one who owns that you are not good but who zealously seeks to point people to our need to live reconciled to our good God. Your job is not to change those who follow you, but to lead people beyond yourself to where they can find true and lasting change from the only God who is good. Before there can be lasting human reformation, there must be divine redemption. Which leads us to our second point. God is good. And so there is hope for us. God is good. And so there is hope for us. Did you notice that after every confrontation and short-term reform in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah prays? Let's read those prayers again. Start in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, if you read this chapter earlier this week, you probably wondered about these prayers. I certainly did. Maybe it sounded to you like Nehemiah was being like the Pharisee in the temple that Jesus talked about. You know, boasting before God about how good he had been, even though the people around him had been so bad. But that second prayer that we read, that prayer verse 22, that, that shows us he doesn't come to God feeling like he deserves God's favor. He asks to be spared. Why? Not because of his love for God, but because of God's steadfast love, not because of his good deeds. These are humble prayers. Nehemiah is identifying himself with the people. He knows he is part of this Corporate whole, these people who have been unfaithful to the covenant, he owns that. He owns that from the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 6, he lumps himself in. What will he, a sinful man among sinful people, plead before a holy God? Can he plead the merit of his efforts? He cannot. Can he plead the ignorance of the people? No. Can he plead for another chance? What good would that do? If you look at each of Nehemiah's prayers closely, you'll see that he's asking God to do good. And the goodness Nehemiah asks has everything to do with God's goodness and not his own. Look at verse 14. Nehemiah wants his leadership to reform the temple to leave a lasting legacy of true God worship in Jerusalem. In verse 22, Nehemiah prays for God to show his unfailing faithfulness and undeserved grace to Nehemiah, even though Nehemiah knows he doesn't deserve it. In verse 29, Nehemiah asks God to demonstrate the goodness of his perfect justice against people who had robbed God of his rightful glory and misled the people away from being God's distinct and holy people. In other words, Nehemiah in all of this prays that God in his faithfulness would uphold his glory, demonstrate his covenant love, and administer his good justice. That's what Nehemiah is asking. Nehemiah's prayer is for God to be good and do good. And his request is that as God shows himself good, that would also be for the good of Nehemiah. Verse 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. So even though the book of Nehemiah demonstrates how good of a leader Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is not putting his hope there. He's hoping in a good God. Now, after Nehemiah closes, the historical record of the Bible will go quiet for 400 years. Nehemiah's prayers, the looking forward of the prophets, even God's promises will, as it were, just sort of float. Jewish society will remain in the same place, exiled, disobedient, helpless to change the way they are. The question just kind of hangs there. Will the God who started this story creating all things and saying after he made them, This is good, who then only was to have his creation turned and done and 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 violated by the evil of humankind again and again and again and again and again, generation after generation? Will that God choose to do good again? Will God remember the slaves? And it just hangs. Four centuries. Thankfully, the creator who pronounced this is good over the creation he made had not changed a bit by the end of Nehemiah. Now he is ready to make a new creation through a good Adam and instead of starting from nothing again, he starts where it all is, in curse and ruin. And he recreates sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God broke the 400-year silence and answers Nehemiah's prayers by sending his son. The angelic messengers told Mary that this one finally would save his people from their sins. The voice of God at Jesus' baptism said, Finally a good man, a man God is pleased with. He was born not conceived in that line of sinful nature, but by God through the Holy Spirit and a virgin birth. With his coming already the curse of sin and death are straining to keep their hold over humanity. And then King Jesus starts to walk in this world and lead. He's not interested in making physical kingdoms. He is not focused on returning a city, Jerusalem, to her former glory. He had a whole different thing in mind. He'd come to build a new dwelling place that was not contained in walls or temples because it was him himself. God with us for us to live with God. He had a zeal like Nehemiah that took him to cleanse the temple in John 2, but his zeal would take him farther than Nehemiah could go. Not at all surprised or frustrated by the prevailing sin of mankind, Jesus knew from the day he began that a better sacrifice needed to be made. This was not a matter of making sure that there was grain and goats for offerings and for the priests. A perfect lamb needed to stand in the place of sinful people. A pure priest needed to reconcile men to God. Jesus became both. He would not be a king who cursed, beat people, and pulled out their hair to try to convince people to obey God. Instead, in order to bring us life with God, he would be cursed, beaten, and have his hair pulled out. He would suffer injustice in order to have the justice that Nehemiah prayed for fall on him at the cross. There he took all God's righteous wrath against our sin and our nature. He did so much more than Nehemiah. Beyond providing for the offering, Jesus provided himself as the offering. God remembered Nehemiah's prayer when he sent Jesus. And Jesus came to restore worship to God in human hearts. God remembered Nehemiah's prayer when Jesus died and Jesus was not spared so that we might be spared through his steadfast love. God remembered Nehemiah's prayer when Jesus suffered injustice and those who are guilty as lawbreakers now have a way to be free from our condemnation. In all of this, God has been good. That was God's answer in part. But God had an even better story. For the new humanity he would make in Jesus. Knowing we were not good. God was good to us in Christ. And in Christ. God makes us new. God remembered Nehemiah's prayer. When three days after Jesus died. God raised him from the dead. And obliterated the grip of sin and death. Over sinful people. Jesus remembered Nehemiah's prayer. When he ascended to heaven. And sent his spirit to apply Jesus' righteousness. To human hearts. The Holy Spirit remembers Nehemiah's prayer every time he comes to remove a dead and sinful heart and replace it with a heart that beats for Christ, that is alive with the heartbeat of Jesus, that not only knows I should obey under his law, but under Christ's good reign in my life, I want to obey him. As Romans 6 verse 4 says, we were buried with him by baptism in the death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's how God remembers Nehemiah's prayer. Christian, do you want to be, you want your life to be used as we sang Ransom live used in any way God chooses. You want God to be the one who receives glory for your life. Praise God. He heard Nehemiah's prayer and he has brought Jesus into your heart to make it so. Do you want to give all of yourself and what you have to love and serve Jesus? This change has already been made possible because God remembered and gave his only son for you. Do we want as a church to live holy, distinct from the world, and honoring to our Lord? We can. Because God in his faithful and steadfast love remembered Nehemiah's prayer for our eternal good. God is good. He brings us Jesus. God is good. He makes the old new. God is good. He breaks cycles and causes change. God is good. He directs our life. So I think Nehemiah has a prayer to teach us. It's a prayer of humility. It's not of deserving. It's it's a prayer that comes from a heart that reflects, without God, we are not good. Words of trust and the unfailing goodness of our good God. And they go like this. Remember us, oh God. For good. As we close out our study of this book, I realized there are so many lessons yet unlearned that we could have spent time on, even today. I trust God in His goodness will keep teaching us as He builds us to be His people, His dwelling. We need to remember the importance of God in the middle of every part of our lives. We need to remember that true conversion happens first in our hearts and then in our behavior. We need to remember that in order to change and grow, we must die and rise over and over again. That life with God happens through the Spirit alive in us. All of this is vital for our future as God's church. But our trust does not lie in making sure we learn all the lessons, but in the goodness of God to save us, teach us, and lead us day by day. To be who we need to be, God must do it. Wherever we need to end up, God must take us there. To be faithful to him, we depend on him being faithful to us. I chose to preach through this book because I thought the theme of rebuilding in Nehemiah could be helpful for our church. I trust we've learned things that will help us in our future days as a church. But I think the message of Nehemiah as we close it up is more foundational than that. It is a hope-filled message that in taking our trust off ourselves and putting it all on God that's where we will find a hope in a future before we look to build or rebuild nehemiah takes us back to the foundation of our faith as we move forward as a church remember we are not good but God is for all of life, let's hope in him and follow his good, his good lead in Jesus Christ, who is worthy of that and so much more. Let's pray. So Lord, we've prayed and we have asked and you have answered in your word and you have shown us Christ. How good you have been in Christ. How good Jesus is. How good to look at him again and see what he's accomplished for every sinner who would trust and believe in him. How good is the future laid out in front of us because of what you have done. We're not left to just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But you have come and broken the cycles of slavery and brought new life. And we praise you for it. And you're powerful. Your cross is able and your resurrection is victorious. Thank you. You're so good. And you would have been good if you'd done none of it. But in your mercy and your steadfast love, you would have it this way. You would have sinners reconciled to you. You would have us redeemed. You would show us a way into eternal life. Oh God, for anyone outside of the life you provide in Christ, bring them in. Bring them in today. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, even as we close our time now and go out into the world and life you provided for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.